Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. By an historic 5-4 to four vote, the U.S. Supreme Court puts the federal government on notice to begin regulating the global warming gas, CO2. Environmental advocates and industry lobbyists agree that the ruling is a major turning point in the fight over climate change. The fact that the court asserted its jurisdiction in a global climate case and accepted the standing of the petitioner in the case is very significant. And for people uh, in industry to say that it's not, they're probably gilding the lily a little bit. Also, warnings that climate change will especially hurt the poor and promote widespread conflict. It's known statistically quite powerfully. We see it before our eyes in in the case of uh, Darfur uh, and the Horn of Africa, that when the rains fail, the wars come. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. On April 2nd, the Supreme Court of the United States ordered in effect that the federal government must join the rest of the world's major industrialized nations and take control of emissions of the global warming gas, carbon dioxide. The case of Massachusetts versus the EPA had its origins in the Clinton administration, but the Bush administration had been steadfast in refusing to regulate CO2. By a 5-4 to four vote, the high court ruled the EPA's refusal to act was arbitrary and capricious. Among other things, the government had argued that regulating global warming gases might put the U.S. at a disadvantage in climate negotiations with developing nations. This drew some of the sharpest language in the majority opinion. Justice John Paul Stevens wrote... While the president has broad authority in foreign affairs, that authority does not extend to the refusal to execute domestic laws. In a few minutes, we'll explore the impact of the Supreme Court ruling. But we begin our coverage by turning to the lawyer who wrote the brief for the lead plaintiff in the case. Lisa Heinzernling is a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Hello, professor. Hello. So how big a deal is this Supreme Court decision uh, regarding Massachusetts versus the EPA? I think it's really one of the biggest environmental cases the Supreme Court has decided. If you look just at the magnitude of the problem that's under consideration, climate change, you can't get any bigger than that. On every single issue, we won, and I think we uh, won big on standing, on the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases, on its discretion to refuse to regulate. On every one of those issues, we had to win. We did win, and the Supreme Court wrote a very broad opinion on each of those issues. Now, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, the biggest part of this case was something called standing, that is the right for people uh, to sue. What is that, and how did this case come down on this question of standing? Standing is sort of shorthand for the kind of injury that you have to have in order to get into federal court. And so the court says that you have to be what they call injured in fact. You have to suffer some kind of um, injury in order to be able to bring a claim in federal court. The court also says that you need to show that whatever violation of law you've asserted is connected to your injury, is caused, uh, your injury is caused by that violation of law. And then third, you have to show that judicial redress will um, help 
solve your problem. And on each of these three counts, the court ruled in our favor. How was it that Massachusetts was able to claim injury uh, from carbon dioxide? Uh, We argued that uh, Massachusetts had already lost um, some portion of its territory due to rising sea levels. So what was the argument uh, against this? What was it that uh, the uh, Bush administration said that people weren't being injured by this or the courts couldn't deal with this? The government said that uh, automobiles, which are the subject of this case, contribute too small a portion of the um, problem of uh, climate change to show either that our problem was caused by EPA's refusal to act on climate change or to show that any judicial recovery would help us. And so they said that it's just too too little a piece of the problem in order to get into federal court. And the Supreme Court really resoundingly defeated that argument and said that um, even if you solve a problem to some extent, that's enough to get into federal court. You don't have to show that this solution will be everything or even most of uh, the solution, but just that it'll solve it to some extent. Now, Massachusetts is the first name on the case, but California has been much involved in this and, in fact, has... Uh, some important rules regarding automobile emissions and carbon dioxide that have been held in abeyance pending this case. So explain for me a bit more about the California cases and the standards that are involved here. California has asked EPA to permit it to set its own standards for automobiles, and 10 states have said that they would like to set California standards for automobiles for their own fleets. And this has gone on for years. I mean, yes. for a long time, California's been able to have its own air pollution Absolutely. Standard. it's It's been since really day one under the Clean Air Act. California has been allowed to set its own standards. And for a very long time, states have been allowed to opt in to those standards. Okay. And uh, so the question really is, um, may California do that? And if you look at the statutory requirements, once EPA has, it as, as it has with this decision, been given the authority to regulate greenhouse gases, it seems to me quite easy to conclude that California's standards uh, should uh, be approved. And of course, California wants to limit greenhouse gases coming from cars, which essentially, of course, means that they're going to have to get better mileage. Yes. The legal system takes a long time to get things done. This case was based on an action brought by groups starting in 1998. Here it is almost nine years later that we get a clear statement from the Supreme Court of the United States that Uh, the EPA must regulate uh, the principal human-caused greenhouse gas. How much does that trouble you as a a lawyer that it can take so long to get such a critical issue addressed? It is terrible that it takes this long. It, It took the EPA from 1999 to 2003 simply to answer the petition to regulate greenhouse gases. And then it took all of this time for the case to um, make its way through the courts. It's a terrible way to proceed. It would be much better if an agency like the EPA simply looked at its authority, looked at the world around it, saw a significant problem, which is climate change, and then simply did its job without being forced to do its job by the courts. That would be much better, much more efficient. Uh, I think everyone would be benefited. Lisa Heinzer-Ling is a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. She wrote the Supreme Court briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs in the case of Massachusetts versus EPA. Thank you. Thank you. The impact of the high court ruling is already being felt. 
On Capitol Hill, it's changing the debate on climate action. And the EPA almost immediately started a long-delayed process to allow California to regulate CO2 emissions from cars. That move would permit other states to adopt the restrictions as well. Here's Living on Earth's Jeff Young. Sierra Club attorney David Bookbinder worked years on the climate change case Massachusetts versus EPA. You might think that after his side won in the Supreme Court, he'd take a day to celebrate. No such luck. It felt really good until we started having to do all the follow-up work. 24 hours after the decision, Bookbinder was packing legal briefs for a trip to Vermont, where he'll put the high court ruling right to work. Vermont is among 10 states joining California's effort to limit the greenhouse gases coming from cars and trucks. The auto industry sued to stop them, and the Vermont case is the first to go to trial. Automakers argued that if EPA lacked authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, the states couldn't do it either. Now that five justices say EPA does, in fact, have authority, Bookbinder expects the other auto cases to take the same road. We believe that those courts will now wind up dismissing the auto industry's claims. That shows how immediate and profound the high court decision could be in the climate change debate. And it doesn't stop with tailpipes. The high court case dealt with auto emissions, but Georgetown environmental law professor Richard Lazarus says the same legal argument could easily apply to stationary sources like power plants. This case has a really wide sweep, the Massachusetts for CPA. This case establishes that uh, greenhouse gases are air pollutants for the purpose of motor vehicles. There's no light between that issue and whether or not they're air pollutants for the purposes of major stationary sources under the Clean Air Act. Together, autos and power plants account for more than 60 percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Lazarus calls the high court's climate decision historic, and he notes it wasn't the only environmental victory from the court. In a second decision issued at the same time, justices unanimously upheld something called new source review. That important enforcement tool in the Clean Air Act requires power plants to add pollution controls when they expand their capacity. In both cases, arguments favorable to industry had won in the lower courts. Lazarus says the Supreme Court's decision to even consider those cases was unprecedented. This was the first time the court decided any case, let alone two cases, in which the environmentalists sought Supreme Court review from a loss. That hasn't really happened once before, let alone happened twice before. I, I kind of view it for the environmental world as the legal equivalent of winning two national championships in one day. The mood was more somber across town on K Street, where industry attorney Scott Siegel also turned to a sports metaphor to sum up his reaction. Uh, there's no joy in legal mudville for industry <laughs> on this day. Siegel represents refineries, power companies, and other energy interests at the firm Bracewell and Giuliani. He's bothered by the part of the court's decision that deals with standing. That's the term for the right to bring a claim in federal court. Justice Stevens's opinion opens the courthouse door a bit wider for global warming suits. That could spell trouble for power plants and other greenhouse gas emitters seeking permits for new facilities. The fact that the court asserted its jurisdiction in a global climate case and accepted the standing of the petitioner in the case is very significant. And for people in industry to say that it's not, they're probably gilding the lily a little bit. Lawyers representing industry are thinking very hard about what the impact might be for stationary sources, and, uh, and they'd be well advised to do so.
The justice's decision could have an even greater impact in Congress, where the Democratic leadership is considering several climate change proposals. New Mexico Democrat Jeff Bingaman chairs the Senate's Energy Committee. Now that it's clear EPA not only has the authority, but is really under an obligation to step up and regulate greenhouse gas emissions uh, if Congress does not act, I think it does put additional pressure on Congress to act. Bingaman says many members of Congress prefer a comprehensive climate change bill with a cap-and-trade system. He says that would be more cost-effective global warming policy than a simple regulation by EPA. But any such bill still faces opposition at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. At a White House press conference the day after the high court's ruling, President Bush restated his objections. He says a cap on U.S. emissions would hurt the economy while leaving other countries free to pollute. Because we could pass uh, any number of measures that are now being uh, discussed uh, in the Congress, but unless there is an accord with China, China will produce greenhouse gases that will offset anything we do. The high court's decision acts like a catalyst, speeding up the climate change debate already underway. It emboldens states and environmental groups to act at the local level, which in turn puts more pressure on Congress to come up with a national policy. And that could force a global warming showdown with the White House. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Later in the program, we'll hear how the newest scientific assessment points to a rising risk of conflict related to global warming. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hurricane forecasters are predicting that 2007 will once again be a big year for storms. They're projecting nine hurricanes, including five of at least Category 3 strength, akin to the blockbusters of 2004 and 2005. Of course, there were similar predictions for last year which did not materialize, likely due to the dampening effect on storms of the El Nino weather system. The prospect that another major hurricane could come ashore in the U.S. this year can hardly bring comfort to the people in the Gulf Coast region, who were savaged by Hurricanes Katrina and Rita in 2005. Today, 18 months after the storms, many New Orleanians still live in 240 square feet of space, that is, in FEMA trailers in their own driveways, next to bare foundations or the gutted frames of their former homes. And many city residents are frustrated. They're fed up with struggling to get loans and grants to rebuild their houses. But neighbors are still helping neighbors, and they're being helped in turn by a remarkable flow of young volunteers still streaming in from around the country. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports from New Orleans. This neighborhood in New Orleans East is a stretch of tidy post-war homes with front yards mostly still bare after their salt water soaking by Lake Pontchartrain a couple of blocks up the road. The white rear ends of a few FEMA trailers butt out into driveways. But a few months ago, there were more trailers than this. There were really more trailers than this. So for the sea, majority of our trailers are leaving. That's a good sign. Tangie Russell keeps vigil over her neighborhood by day. At night, when she's at work at the post office, her neighbors keep watch. Determined to stay connected after the storm, somehow, together, they've created the certainty for each other to return. 
one of them found out that most of our neighbors were coming back. So one told the other and then word spread it out that the majority of us was coming back. That gave us a green light to go ahead and start redoing our house. Hey! She's one of our workers with energy. But she lives down the street too. These neighbors mow the lawns of the few houses still vacant. So basically if I need help with roofing or something, I'll call the guys and they'll come. So we pretty much help each other out because we have a neighbor down there. He's in Iraq right now. We keep in touch with him. He calls us once a month and let us know that he's okay and he'll be back. Once we um, get everybody back, we're going to have a, a seafood world in the neighborhood. And today is another advance toward that date because the house across from Russell's, vacant for so long, is finally getting its guts removed. A group of students from the College of Worcester in Ohio wear white Tyvek suits, smash through drywall, and shovel it out onto the curb. On top of a little pile the students have set aside is a card that says, Mom, you are valued, you are needed, you are loved. Inside, the walls were once light blue. Now a fierce black mold populates the walls up to a perfect line at about three feet, the line where water sat. The splotchy mass is nearly a quarter inch thick in some places. Hey, hey where the keys at to the blue bag? A few hours later, the house is gutted and some students move on to the next house. These volunteers and thousands of others are a feature of today's New Orleans. They come from all over the country in wave after wave, organized by student associations, church youth groups, young activists. On any given morning, you can find a newly arrived group getting orientation, as here at Louisiana United Methodist Storm Recovery. In the meantime, we have one of New Orleans' finest right here. This is Woo! Sergeant. He's going to talk to you about safety while you're here this week. Just going to tell you all, I'm John Favalor. I'm going to sign up here to the 6th District. This area around here, I'm not going to lie to you, is one of the hottest areas we have. Just around the corner the other day, we had a drive-by shooting. And it's all our shootings up here are dope dealers. They, they shooting each other. We had three of them Saturday. But while you're up here, be careful. You ladies like to shop. They got all kinds of blue jean places. They sell the blue jeans, the used jeans, and everything else. But around here, don't go roaming at night. When y'all do these houses, just pay attention to what you're doing. We've been having a lot of trouble with spiders. Hit a couple of police, but they got bit. You know, make sure it's well lit where you're working at. And that's all I got to tell you. Sir? Uh-huh. What kind of spiders was it? The brown recluse. Oh, no. But uh, y'all just be careful out there and thank y'all. We really do appreciate it. If it wasn't for y'all, we'd be in deep trouble. And, you know, thank y'all from the people of New Orleans. Okay? The owners of the houses where the volunteers will work may be elderly, disabled, for some reason unable to do the tear out on their homes. Recovery Center staffer Sean Darnell reminds the volunteers to be compassionate about what that person may have been through. You may look at something and say, this is not worth saving. You know, why, why does she want to keep this? Darnell tells them to collect any papers that could be used for identity theft. The volunteers' work will enable the crucial next step, treating the framing for mold. Your goal when you walk out of that house is to have nothing but the exterior walls and the studs showing. 
got knee pads, crowbars, small sledges. And with that, volunteers collect hand tools and fan out across the city to their assignments. Sean Darnell sits down for a minute to breathe between back-to-back -back orientations. I, I think our Baton Rouge headquarters told us that we will see over 3,000 volunteers for the month of March. We have no more housing <laughs> for the month of March. Since the storms, she estimates her group has brought in 25,000 people. That's just United Methodist efforts. It doesn't count Habitat for Humanity or Catholic Charities or other large nonprofits. I have been surprised at the response 18 months later. All of the experts told us after the first year, it's going to decrease drastically. And we have more volunteers here than we've ever had before by double. We know that this summer we have another very big influx of volunteers. It's, it's amazing. People like Darnell, who direct these scores of volunteers, are disaster victims themselves. They haul themselves out of bed in the morning and face personal restoration while they try to raise up their city. My house was okay, but Katrina has torn my family apart. My husband is working in California and has been there for a year now and we don't have an end in sight. Only half as many people live in the city as before. Half a population means half an economy. Darnell's husband works for Southwest Airlines, which offered to keep its employees on if they would relocate somewhere people were still going. The family's best compromise on income, stability, and school left their eight-year-old son Colton living away from his dad. You know, there's just, there was despair still and the devastation in certain areas of the city, you look around and it's just, it's ghost towns. The frustration with even now, 18 months later, going to the grocery store and there not being any eggs because they might be delivered, but they haven't had the staff to get them out. Just living here on a day-to-day -day basis can be nerve-wracking. She worries about her son. And that is my fear as a mother is that, he grows up and, and, you know, eight, ten years from now, he looks back and says, my life was normal until Katrina. After a day of often physical work, the volunteers return to wherever they're camped, in this case, Carrollton United Methodist Church. The stately building is showing some wear. It's been given over to need. Some high school students from an Iowa City Unitarian youth group are here. They've spent several days remaking a ball field and clearing monster overgrowth. They're angry at what they've witnessed, especially the notices tacked to the front doors of people who aren't back yet, saying they have to clean up or face legal action. Here are Abby Marshall, Mike Misson, and Eve Harvey Stavely. The lady's house that we worked on, she hasn't been seen since the storm and they just put a note up on her house because like in a, she's an old lady and she's in a wheelchair and Nobody they expect her to come back and clean all this up. Yeah. I was disgusted. Yeah. I was just like, how can you do this to your they people? They don't even have power there yet. So. These are people who had to work for what they have and they're proud of what they have. The loss leaves a powerful impression on Mike and Eve. Like a lot of it's just clear and like overgrown, but you can still see the foundations. You just realize how many houses were just like ripped up and destroyed. 
forward. I mean, you know, they're never going to forget the memories. Going on a tour today, she could point out, she's like, that open lot was so-and-so's house, and she knew who lived there. And Like, there's just, like, one spot where all the oak trees had, like, overgrown into a canopy, and she just said the whole street had been like that, and then it was just, like, at the end, it was just, like, four trees that were doing that, and it was just sad to see how much had been destroyed. Everywhere they go, Anna Can says they encounter gratitude. Just random people in the street will tell us that they're happy we're here and stuff, yeah. and it makes you feel really good. But, but, and so I just want them to get their houses back and stuff. Several kids say they felt misled by media coverage. How could I not know the number of people who died in these storms? Abby Marshall asked. I feel like, I mean, you shouldn't have to come here to know the damage that's been done, and you shouldn't have to come here to just like see what's happened. I, I don't know, it's just there's so much that went on that I feel like I would never have known if I hadn't come here and it's been a huge eye opener. Like I know now, I like I can't just take things for face value, you know. Older students also said what they'd seen on TV did not prepare them for reality. I'm Aaron Fitzgerald and I'm from Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. When I came down here and I saw cars still flipped over, roofs just off of person's house. And then recently today we gutted someone's house and her floor, this was in, in the lower ninth ward, her floor was just completely st still damped. And I took up her floor and it, I had to bring her in the house and, and I'm like, do you want us to take up your whole floor or do you just want us to leave the frame? Um, a friend of mine, Jamie, he fell through twice. I fell through once. It just... It was, it was awful. The trip, though, he says, is worthwhile. I mean, I'd recommend anyone to come down here because, I mean, I think that when you do, your life will be changed. Like, I feel changed. Fitzgerald recounts that one of his group leaders marveled at the numbers of volunteers, but he was struck by something different. And I'm thinking in my head, we're supposed to be a first world country, and yet we still have others living in third world poverty in our own country, in a city that is a major city. Still older students, law students, have formed their own student hurricane network. Since the storms, the network has brought down 2,700 law students to the Gulf Coast and organized others long distance. Lauren Bartlett is in her third year at American University. First of all, I think that there's sort of a new generation of law students, which are definitely committed to public interest work. Maybe even some who came to law school um, since the storms of 2005 for the particular purpose of being involved. Morgan Williams is co-founder of the network and a third-year student at Tulane. He says even though they're students, not attorneys, and even though Louisiana law is unique, the students can be extremely helpful. Basically, in communities where homes have been handed down for generations and generations, you know, folks at the time of the storm might not have had the actual piece of paper that said that they were the owner of that home. And when the home gets destroyed and everyone gets um, displaced, the state says, we need that piece of paper. And so because the federal funding that's being administered through the state through the Road Home Program is linked to having that piece of paper, they're being locked out from being able to receive those funds and being able to begin the process of rebuilding. Pro bono attorneys who can help people with these affidavits are so overwhelmed they can't take more applications. Enter the law students. The teams are also carrying out a major survey of people who are still, this long after the storm, living in FEMA trailers. Residents living in trailers are the most forgotten, the most 
marginalized. There's a lot of needs, but we need to figure out what those are before we can really start to move. It's something that's bringing these law students face-to-face with the realities of the rebuilding process and the frustration and the anger and the sources of those frustrations and anger that folks down here are really facing in their efforts to rebuild. Bartlett says she's one of the law students whose life direction has been changed. When the storm hit, you know, some things just really touch you in a way that you can't really use words to describe. And when the storm hit, you know, felt really connected and felt really personal about it all. And I started fundraising at my law school, um, started having conferences and getting um, articles published and came down and have been here pretty much every second of every day that I could possibly spare since. And I'm going to be moving down here in August. I want to live here. Every Tuesday night, people in the Holy Cross neighborhood in the Ninth Ward meet. They've met for years, but now their work is all strategy, related to rebuilding and protecting their historically rich and devastated neighborhood. They sort through bureaucratic and day-to-day hurdles. And one guy said he had a building permit number, but when he tried to get his building permit, they told him he had no building permit. So I haven't had a Mine just went out a few days ago and everything melted down. Residents also address signs of progress. They make plans for opening a new store and donation center for green building materials. They applaud a group of first-year medical students from Dartmouth who've stopped in. They're helping rebuild a neighborhood clinic. And there's a happy announcement. More people are coming back. The post office is delivering to 800 houses in the neighborhood, up from 200 a month and a half ago. At the break, 77-year-old Jean Lee stops to discuss how things are going with her property. Um, I was in the area on Monday getting my house gutted out. The houses are really coming back. Who, who was getting your house out? Uh, it was a, 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 some volunteers from the uh, University of New Hampshire. Very lovely young people, and they worked very hard, very, very hard. They started like 9 o'clock in the morning, and they worked about 5 in the evening, and the house was completely gutted. But when it comes to taking the next step, rebuilding, Lee, like so many people here, has been waiting for a letter that says she'll get some state recovery help. It hasn't arrived. So now I've got to go back and to make a loan if I'm going to repair the property. And at, that, and at my advanced age, I don't know, you know how that's going to work out. That has me bothered. But John Lee made sure I knew before the meeting resumed that she plans to meet the challenges. I said, I'm 77 and I I have not begun to fight. I'm going to fight to keep my house. The Holy Cross meeting adjourns. It's late. Tonight, under roofs across the city, young volunteers will set out air mattresses, assimilate what they've seen, wash dishes together. And in a too quiet neighborhood elsewhere in the city, an ice cream man drives a distance before there's someone to spend a dollar. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in New Orleans.
You can find more of our coverage of the aftermath of Katrina on our website at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And we'd love to hear your comments on our program. Send them along to comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Just ahead, how global warming is raising concerns about international conflict and social strife. You're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from you, our listeners, and from member stations. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Poor nations are at special risk from the droughts, storms, and rising sea levels that are expected to result from global warming. That's the warning contained in the latest assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, made up of many of the world's leading climate scientists. Joining us now to discuss where and why we might see increased conflict related to global warming is Jeffrey Sachs. He's a professor at Columbia University and former director of the UN Millennium Project. Hello, sir. How are you? Good to be with you. So where in the world, what two or three areas in the world do you think are going to be hardest hit by the earliest phases of climate change? I think the main message is that all parts of the world are going to be affected, and they're going to be affected in major ways, in food production, uh, in disease control, in risks of natural hazards like high-intensity hurricanes, in changing uh, water patterns, in uh, vulnerability to drought, and so forth. But of course, as is so often true in life, uh, it will be the poor, and especially the poorest of the poor, who are the most vulnerable to these changes. For them, an adverse shock often means uh, nothing less than death. So what does this mean in terms of, well, frankly, war and peace around the world? We already have seen in the poorest places in the world conflicts due to the lack of rainfall, for example. It's known statistically quite powerfully. We see it before our eyes in in the case of uh, Darfur uh, and the Horn of Africa, that when the rains fail, the wars come. Let me point out that uh, a place like Darfur uh, is uh, at the core a place suffering from extreme drought. And by the best evidence, uh, at least part of that drought is a decline of rainfall due to man-made climate change. But we're going to see tremendous stresses in many parts of the world, and not only the poorest. Uh, Australia was hit by a mega drought, which caused a mega loss of its uh, traditional uh, grain exports this year. Those affected world market prices everywhere. The consequences of simply continuing on the path we're on is enormous risk that different countries will be pushed over the edge that the living standards of those above the margin of survival will suffer, and that always causes uh, political conflict, and those living on the edge of survival will be pushed right over the edge. What about the question of refugees, whether it's 
drought that uh, forces people off the land or rising sea levels or uh, catastrophic storms, people are going to find that home isn't so hospitable anymore and want to go someplace else. Um, That's sure to lead to conflict, I would think. We're going to see tremendous pressures of mass coastal populations trying to move uh, inland, but where? We also see it in people moving out of drought-stricken regions. In Africa, you see the landlocked countries sending populations to the coastal economies. And when those new populations uh, come in, there are massive clashes uh, of politics that often trigger mass violence. This is uh, one of the things that happened in Cote d'Ivoire in the Ivory Coast. And we're also seeing, of course, lots of refugee movements around the Darfur crisis and the South Sudan crisis around Somalia uh, and in the pastoral lands of uh, northeast Kenya. So this is a uh, quite pervasive phenomenon. People move to where they can stay alive. Uh, We know that there are already large water migrations taking place in India. Uh, This is uh, the way of uh, humanity uh, to move uh, when survival prospects diminish. But uh, in a system of uh, national boundaries and flashpoints of uh, cultural conflict, this obviously already does trigger violence and could potentially trigger a lot more. I want to look at China for a moment here. It's growing economically rapidly, but also the Gobi Desert north of it is growing rapidly, moving south. Um, There's a water squeeze. There's a people squeeze. They have high demand for energy. What will happen in China as uh, the effects of climate change uh, crank into the uh, ecology and, uh, should we say, the economy? China is the perfect exemplar where these issues of sustainable development uh, could never be considered uh, to be second tier, say, behind the economy. They are part and parcel of China's very development challenge. If there's one risk for China's long-term growth, uh, it it actually won't be politics, in my view. Uh, It is going to be the environment. Will there be a way to live sustainably where you have more than 20% of the world's population, but you have only about 6 to 7% of the world's arable land and a similar proportion of uh, the access to water resources. In northern China, you have a traditionally dry area that is uh, going to be tremendously hit by the depletion of groundwater because it's been uh, overpumped. And those water stresses are leading to massive, bewildering plans of diverting the huge water systems from the south of uh, China, the Yangtze uh, and uh, other water systems up through the north in giant canals with no doubt enormous ecological consequences. And in the north, the, the Great Yellow River often no longer runs to the sea. Add on top of that the problems of snowmelt, precipitation change, uh, glacier disappearance, uh, and so forth, and the water challenges in China become absolutely a first-tier question for China's long-term economic development. I know the leaders are very much concerned about this. There are not easy answers right now. But it is one of the reasons why, in my view, China will come to the negotiating table and be a lead participant in a long-term solution to climate change. They simply have to do it. You sound very optimistic. I am optimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic because the, the drama that we're in is so stark, the costs of inaction 
are so great, and yet the costs of real solutions are so modest relative to the risks of doing nothing. If we simply flipped our way of thinking and stopped seeing this as a war of us versus them, but as a challenge in which we're all on the same side, facing common ecological challenges, we'd find a tremendous camaraderie, in fact, that could easily be developed and that would be crucial for finding the deeper solutions to these problems. Jeffrey Sachs is the director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. This month, this Earth Month, Living on Earth is taking a listen back to some of the award-winning stories that have been heard on these broadcasts over the past 16 years. And today we start with a piece about a sound sculptor for whom it seems that anything can be music to his ears. We first heard from sonic artist Steve Peters in 2002, when producer Paul Ingalls brought one of Peters' environmental sound sculptures to the radio. Peters spent hours recording in an outdoor space in New Mexico called The Land, taking care to capture sounds of nature that normally escape our attention. The broadcast segment won an Edward R. Murrow Award from the Radio and Television News Directors Association. Steve Peters' latest audio installation is up this month at the College of Santa Fe in New Mexico. We'll hear about that and his other recent work in a few minutes. But first, let's dial up the Wayback Machine for a listen to Paul Ingalls' 2002 piece on Steve Peters' work called Hearings. The land is located uh, about an hour and a half drive southeast of Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the eastern foothills of the Monsanto Mountains. It's a 40-acre site, but there's 14 acres of it that they use as a work site and exhibition space for environmental art, and specifically low-impact environmental art. I was just so impressed by how still it was and quiet and and what happened was that because it was so quiet every little sound that happened really stood out you really noticed it and all the sounds had this kind of delicate hushed quality that I'm a real sucker for anyway so what happens if I commit myself to coming here for a year a couple of times a month and sitting and doing nothing more for an hour at a time than listening to what's going on here Each time I would go and, and spend this time listening to this place, I would make a recording of that hour. I, I stretched a whole day out over a year. I made 24-hour cycle of recordings over the course of one year. What I did with all those 24 hours of recordings was to edit each hour down to about uh, five minutes or so. This is the sound of a, a choya cactus. Choya cactuses are these kind of long, spindly things. Um, and when they die, they, they leave these beautiful kind of sculptural 
shapes, uh, like long tubes with little long holes in them, and they're hollow. So this is a choya cactus with a contact microphone attached to it on a windy day, and you're hearing the wind sort of whistling through the, the holes in this dead cactus. This here was probably the most sensational sound in the whole show. It, I had set a contact microphone outside the entrance to a, an anthill of these large red, I think, harvesting ants. And a couple of scouts came out and investigated, and they walked around on it, and then they went back in and got a whole bunch more ants, and they all came out and swarmed on the contact microphone and started chewing on it. And then they started making these sounds, which I later learned are called stridulation, where they, they sort of have a little, like a rub board on their thorax and their abdomen or something, and they, they rub it together and make this little shrieking noise. It was slightly terrifying. <laughs> I thought, okay, I think I better go now. This is the sound of a, a wire fence that runs around the perimeter of the property, and that's kind of an interesting story because I thought this fence was such an insult to the landscape in a way. You know, I'd, I'd sit there and go, you know, the, the land on this side of it isn't any different than the land on the other side, and what's this thing doing here? It's just ugly and stupid. And then one day I was out there and it was really windy, and I put my ear up to one of the fence posts, and it was the most beautiful sound. The wind was blowing these stalks of grass against the lower strand of the wire fence. You don't get a sense of the beauty of the place from a quick scan. You know, you really have to to slow down and, and be with it and accept it on its own terms. And I think that's a really good lesson for all of us to carry over to all sorts of other areas in our lives. Since Paul Ingalls produced that award-winning story for Living on Earth, Steve Peters has moved to Seattle, where he continues to find and remix unexpected sounds into oral sculptures, including this one called Morning Ragas. He also sometimes appears in the group called Phonographers' Union. What happens at a phonographer's concert is whoever shows up is the group for that night, and it's usually somewhere between 8 and 12 people, and we all have either personal CD players or laptops or iPods 
loaded with recordings that we've all been making on our own. And then we perform live uh, improvising sound collages with untreated field recordings. pretty fascinated with the idea of kind of managing to pull something out of nothing. And then I've also continued to do uh, site-specific sound installations in various places. Um, at the moment, I have one at the College of Santa Fe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Openings for my work tend to be kind of a horrible experience because um, everybody's being festive and drinking wine and talking and laughing and my little quiet, barely audible pieces tend to get crushed. <laughs> so everybody's always saying, can't you turn it up, turn it up? And I'm saying, no, I'm sorry. So come back sometime when it's not the opening. Sonic sculptor Steve Peters' latest work, Atrium Soundspace, can be seen and heard on our website, LOE.org. Next week on Living on Earth, keeping an eye on endangered marine mammals from the air, the job can bring some remarkable rewards. Sometimes you drop down so low, all the, the spout, the blow of the whale drifted through the open window. I mean, we were literally wiping a blue whale's breath off our faces. <laughs> Catching up with Mexico's eco-pilot next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with more of the sonic sculpture of sound artist Steve Peters. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Andrew Lobeck, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Kelly Cronin, and Jeff Turton. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigeon. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 
10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the Earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.